we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Now, we've been maybe, I think, with uh, Ronnie Jones' sermon in there. I think it's been three weeks or so since we've been in Luke. I know you guys are missing it, um, so I figured I'd better dive back in. Luke chapter 12 is where we are now, uh, verses 13 to 21. Uh, I hesitated to cut off the text there because it clearly connects with what uh, comes after, but uh, for the sake of time and things, I think I'm just going to read to verse 21, and uh, next week, probably even the week following that, we'll be diving into some of the sweetest verses in all the Bible, in my opinion. Um, but here we start with something a little bit, uh, perhaps, terrifying. Let's, uh, let's read God's word, I'll pray, we'll, we'll dive in. Luke 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Lord, I know what I'm getting into this morning. I know that in this city especially, probably money, money has a special place in our hearts. It can draw our affections and we can anchor our hopes in it. We can marshal all our energies to try to get it. And you look at that rat race, you look at all of that, all the attempts to climb and ascend and gain and get more of the stuff of this world and you say, fools. So I get the privilege of just trying to slow us down. And get us to consider what it is that you really say and what it is in life that really matters. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's counterintuitive. That what we would call wise, you call foolish. What we would call foolish, you call wise. Would you put our broken hearts back together? Would you help us regain perspective? 
And for those who are not even believers, perhaps in this room, that have bought the lies of the, of the world, or would you pull back the curtain and show them the reality of their own mortality? That life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. There's more. I pray you'd open us up to the more. This morning, I pray you'd open us up to you. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. Um, okay, you guys ready for this? Even just in reading, probably, uh, Jesus already got a hold of your heart a little bit, that conviction that uh, if, you're, if you're a follower of Christ, it's almost like this comfortable uneasiness that you feel what I mean. It's almost like this comforting, I should say, uneasiness where uh, I've had so many people, actually, it's amazing. They thank me for sermons, but when I why? Well, it was so convicting. You go, well, that's an amazing thing to say. And only Christians understand that. Like we rejoice when God puts his finger on idols or things that maybe aren't right in us. We go, thank you, because we know he touches those things to heal. Now, um, I was reading uh, an article uh, last week entitled 25 Richest Cities in America. And I wonder if you know, we could guess, which city tops the list. Um, I'll give you a hint. You live in it. And I quote, The San Jose metro area is by far the wealthiest in the country. The area's median income surpasses incomes in the next wealthiest metro area, nearby San Francisco. By over 13,000. San Jose covers much of Silicon Valley, a tech hub at the southern end of the San Francisco Bay Area. The area's high incomes are attributable to the presence of some of the most recognizable and innovative companies in the world. And a lot of you guys work for those companies. It should come as no surprise then that within the wealthiest city in America, everybody, in one way or another, is talking about money. Everybody is worried about money. Everybody is chasing after money. Sadly, that can even be said oftentimes of those in the church. Our um, text for this morning and the parable therein um, is actually unique to Luke's gospel. Um, Meaning, you know, if you recall, there are four gospels, four accounts of Jesus' life and teaching in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Luke is the only one who brings out this teaching here, this moment in Jesus' ministry here. And there's an interesting thing that you can do when you kind of study the four Gospels side by side. It's, um, it's pretty intriguing. You can see the differences. 
the differences between them. And what comes out oftentimes as you uh, notice the differences, you can start to identify the certain emphases, the certain themes within each of those Gospels that those Gospel writers, inspired by the Spirit, uh, wanted to highlight in particular from Jesus' ministry. And interestingly enough, uh, when you look at Luke's gospel in comparison to some of these other uh, gospel accounts, what stands out is uh, oftentimes is his highlighting, his emphasis on material wealth, prosperity, money, and the danger of it all, the concern that we should have for it. This text is one of those examples. And um, honestly, back when, I guess it's been three years now, back when I was first uh, coming here and trying to kind of pray through what, what will I teach? What will I go through? What, what book of the Bible should I take uh, these people through? Well, I say, might as well just go for the knockout, but I'm going to go for Luke's gospel. And the reason why, one of the major reasons why, was this. Because one of his emphases is the idolatry of money, the danger of wealth. Now, is that going to be popular? Is that going to gain me points with the majority here in Silicon Valley? No. But will it push against the idols, perhaps, that God's people in this place are prone to bow to? And will it therefore help them in their discipleship, their apprenticeship of Jesus, their, their spiritual life and the advance of the kingdom in a real meaningful way? I pray so. so. I love you enough to push against some of these things. Jesus loves us enough to push against some of these things. And that's really what we're going to look at this morning. Um, we're going to talk about the material possessions and stuff in, in general uh, and how we handle those, but really money in particular. Using this text as our guide, I, I want to outline f- what I think at least are, are kind of our three basic options when it comes to approaching money. Um, I think we can either see our money as savior, enemy, or opportunity. We'll kind of make our way through each one of those, and I'll, I'll bring out some points from our, our text this morning as we go. Um, so first, seeing money as Savior. Um, notice with me the context of the parable and really the whole discussion that is uh, taking place in our text. There in verse 13, what we see is that there's this guy in the crowd, it would seem, uh, listening to some of Jesus' teaching as it's been uh, coming out, and he almost kind of interjects in a moment of pause there. He, he, there's something on his heart, something that he, he is weighing heavily on him. And he wants to see if Jesus can help. So there in verse 13, he kind of interrupts or intrudes. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now Jesus, um, as we know, is, is always apt to attend to the requests of people. He's always ready to care, always ready to serve. The Son of Man came to serve That's why he's here. But if we look at his response to this 
man's interruption, this man's plea, this man's request, we might be inclined at first to go, gosh, that sounded out of character. That sounded a bit gruff, a bit rough. Look at verse um, 14 with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, why are you coming to me with this? Ain't my problem. You go, well, that doesn't sound nice. But truly what we come to see is that he's loving this man well. Truly what we come to see as we read along is is that Jesus sees in this man uh, something that's gone awry with regard to money. Money and stuff has become uh, uh, too big of a deal for him, too important to him, more important, it would seem, than even, say, family. It's brother against brother there in verse 13, right? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I mean, I'm a 35-year-old dude. Thankfully, I haven't um, experienced much loss in terms of family and things like that. But I've lived long enough to hear plenty of horror stories from from, uh, families that do lose a a loved one. And then the the resulting chaos uh, as uh, it kind of ensues as um, siblings, relatives fight over the money, the estate, the possessions, like, like, like vultures circling over a cor- corpse, only the corpse is your mom, or your dad, or your grandma. I'm sure many of you, maybe have even been a part of that sort of stuff, where dividing the inheritance, so to speak, divides the family. That's the sort of thing, it seems to me, that is happening here in our text. It's what gives rise to Jesus' admonition, what gives rise to the parable that he's going to share. But what we see, I think, uh, emerging here is this first option we have when it comes to money, and what I would consider probably the most common among men, and that is money, possession, stuff here is being seen as a sort of savior as a sort of God almost, to which you are willing to sacrifice anything else, even people, even blood, even brother. But the question I have for us as we consider this is why? Why would we see money as Savior? Why would we make too big a deal of it? What does money do for us? What does it promise to us? Why do we sacrifice so many other things to get it? I want to consider that with you. I have three different reasons, three ways I think that this plays out. Um, First, We give ourselves to the pursuit of money, I think, because we believe in some way it can save or cushion us from the unknown and the frightening. Or to put it positively, it promises us security, stability, a sense of control. It gives us security. We 
might say. Uh, you see this there in the parable that Jesus um, tells in verse 19. So just to kind of catch you up and refresh at this point, this guy's land has produced plentifully. And he's got all sorts of crop, and he's looking around, and he's going, man, what do I do with all this stuff? This is great. He says, I'll, big builder, I'll, I'll, I'll build bigger barns. Puts all his stuff in these barns. And then he kind of sits back and talks to his soul. Kind of this interesting moment of self-talk. And here's what he says, verse 19. Soul, you have ample goods laid up, for many years. Do you hear that? In other words, soul, you have security. You have stability. You have control. The future is no longer a frightening prospect because you have money. No longer do I need to work and labor. Now, my biggest concern, my worry is, what am I going to do with my free time? How am I going to play? How am I going to spend it? There's a security that comes. He feels good about tomorrow because he has money today. And the reality is, so many of us are like this, right? Am I... Who doesn't? I mean, just, here it is. Here's the contrast. You open up your bank account, you see like $123.35 to your name. Which day is better? This day or the day when you open up, you go, oh, dang, there's like, you know, there's like 633,000 in there. Which day do you feel more stable? Which day do you feel more secure? Which day is a better day? This day you're eating you're eating beans from the pantry and and, and and you know going to Goodwill to get your clothes. This day you're off you know at the the mall you know and you're buying whatever you want, not thinking about it. There's a security that comes, and uh, we have to be honest. We often hear that siren call and follow it. Jesus would say, to our peril. But we pursue it. I mean, isn't it money and financial instability and stuff that people often say are the reason why, uh, one of the main reasons why marriages kind of crumble, fall apart. The stresses. We might be prone to say, if you don't have financial stability, security, do you have stability at all? But there's more. There's more that we feel we're prone to think that money can kind of save us from and save us to. If the first idea is the idea of security, now secondly, I would say there's this idea of pleasure, which just kind of goes a step further. We give ourselves to the pursuit of money because we think it can save us from discomfort and pain. But put positively, we think it can save us to ease indulgence, pleasure. So if on the one hand we, we, we go, okay, your money can save me from all that's scary, all the frightening prospects of the unknown of life, and uh, if this goes wrong, well, at least I have a wallet full of cash. On the other side, what we see is it also can save us from uh, and save us for everything that we want, to, uh, that we want in life. 
It can open the door. It's like a key that opens the door to all the pleasures, all the things that we could ever want. Ease, indulgence, pleasure. We also see this if we keep going on in this man's self-talk there in verse 19. Uh, follow it with me. So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Then what does he say? Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You have security. Now let's get busy working towards pleasure. Eat, drink, be merry. Chill out, relax. Now we look at that and again, we have to be honest and say, gosh, that sounds good. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That sounds nice. Isn't that often why we all work? We work to get to the weekend and we want a little cash in our pocket so we can have fun. We work so we can go on vacations and uh, not just, you know, little staycations where maybe we would get to go to the neighborhood McDonald's, but we want to travel across the world and see all these things and experience all these things. And we work so that we can retire, kick our feet up, you know, by some oceanfront, you know, whatever, and drink Coronas with our bride sitting next to us like we see in the commercials. You probably prefer wine coolers. That's fine. <laughs> it sounds good. Pleasure. Money gets us there, we think. I think we've all seen how this plays out in our hearts. Um, I, I, I hope I'm not the only one. Otherwise, I'm laying my cards on the table. You're going to see how depraved your pastor still is. I'm scrolling through Facebook. And you know everybody always puts their best moments on Facebook. Nobody puts their bad stuff on Facebook. It's always those times when they just really, you know, they're celebrating their big wins or whatever. They're showing you their, their, their greatest stuff. And so you scroll through Facebook. Well, you see, this person went where? This person's doing what right now while I'm here? They're eating that. They're drinking this. They're doing that. They're going. Is it not a little covetousness kind of? Rises up in your heart, a little jealousy. Sometimes thoughts in me like, well, I think I chose the wrong career path. <laughs> like, I don't see that anywhere in my future. I mean, where's the prospect of all the money coming in and this, you know, not just the security, but the pleasure and honey, well, this week let's go here and next week let's go there. The world will be your... Oh, I don't like oysters, so let's change that, right? The world will be your strip of bacon, right? It's just the whole thing, eat it up, enjoy it. That's what money gets you. Maybe I chose the wrong career path because as far as I can tell, I'm going to be renting in this ridiculous city the rest of my life. Any more money than I could get what I want. Last week, I mentioned that article, and this is a real sinister illustration, but I think it just shows you how far this goes. Uh, last week, I, I mentioned that article in the New York Times 
um, where they were kind of calling out and unveiling some of the the, the sexual accusations, harassment stuff that's gone on with uh, Google's some of Google's top execs. And um, one of the things that came out when I read the the uh, entirety of the article, there's this horrendous um, um, little detail here where uh, one of these guys, one of these top exec guys, his his wife, ex-wife now, recently filed a, a civil suit against him where she claims that he had multiple, and I quote, ownership relationships with other women during their marriage. I'm reading from the article right now. Paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to them. The suit included a screenshot of an August 2015 email that this man sent to one woman. Here's what he wrote. And I quote again. You will be happy being taken care of. Being owned is kind of like you're my property. Ownership relationships. Now, again, I'm not thinking that's why the majority of us are, are pursuing money, but it, it shows you the extent to which this goes. We think that if I get money, and we're talking now about millions, billions, whatever, if I get money, I get what I want, period. If I want that woman, I buy that woman. If I want that house, I buy it. If I want that island, I buy it. I get if money gets you everything you want. That's what we that's what we're told. That's what the devil would want us to think. We just chase it. Unaware that there's a hook deep set within it. We think we're getting the world and the world is getting us. Security, pleasure. One more thing I would say that's important here, especially in the West, that I think we think money can give us uh, identity. Identity. Often we give ourselves to the pursuit of money because we think it can save us from obscurity or mediocrity. Or in other words, uh, put positively, it saves us to, it promises us a sense of identity. Status, prominence, respect. In Eastern cultures, this maybe is not so much the case. Um, some of you guys can correct me, but at least from what I've read and heard, what, uh, what I've uh, been told is that in Eastern cultures, uh, largely the identity is formed in relation to the community as a whole. So your identity is going to be established based upon your relationships and how you fit in with uh, within the community as a whole. But here in the West, especially in America, identity is a very individualistic thing. It's not forged necessarily so much by how you fit in with the whole, but actually how you stand out against the whole. What you've made of yourself apart from anyone else's help. That's kind of where you get your identity in the West. Here, it, it, it's tied, it's tethered to our accomplishments, to our successes, to our wins, to what we can do, what we have made of ourselves. And you say, well, how do I know 
What I've made of myself, how do I know I've accomplished anything? So money actually kind of becomes this sort of barometer for us in the West. Our identity gets kind of tethered to it. Who am I? How good am I? Am I good enough? Am I I important enough? Am I worth anything? And our culture would answer something like this. Well, that depends. What kind of car do you drive? I'll tell you how successful you are. What, what, What kind of car do you drive? I'll tell you how much you're worth. What brand clothes do you wear? Where do you, you know, on what side of the city do you live? Oh, I'm sorry. Where do you do your grocery shopping? Walmart or Whole Foods? Hmm? I don't even shop at Whole Foods. I just get it from Amazon, fresh or whatever. They just deliver it to me. But we have these ways of kind of measuring our worth based upon our money. In fact, here's the the crazy thing about our culture. We actually talk about a person's worth in terms of dollars and cents. Oh, here's his net worth. Here's what that guy's worth. Here's what that guy's worth. As if your importance, your value can be determined by how much money, how much stuff you have. And so there are so many, uh, I'm sure, in this city, but all around our country and the world, They think, man, if I get money, if I get to that upper rung, I have identity. I'll have, I'll have that sense of status. I'll get respect. When I go sit around the table at Thanksgiving with my dad, he will, gosh darn it, be proud of me finally. Because I have more money than he does. I don't have to call for handouts anymore. Security, pleasure, identity. I'm sure we could keep going on, but I'll stop there. Jesus shows us the fragility, the vanity, even the foolishness of such pursuits uh, in this parable here. He hints at this in his opening assertion there in verse 15 when he says, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, your life is about more than stuff. Don't make your life just about stuff or it's not going to end well for you. But then he kind of tells this parable to help this brother see it even more clearly and help his audience and us see it even more clearly. And in this parable, the whole story really is just kind of climbing to this, uh, this climax there in verse 20. It's the most devastating verse in the text. When Jesus uh, contradicts everything the world would say, this guy's there lounging on his chair thinking he is on top of the world, and here comes God. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus sums up the meaning in all of this for us there in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The basic point is this. 
Brothers and sisters, who cares how much money you have? If you are not ready to face God, in the end, it is worthless. If you are not ready to face God, whatever security, pleasure, identity, money could give you, it will not be there for you in the end. The bottom will fall out. And you put all your chips in this basket and eternity spans out and you're unprepared. Prepared for everything in this life with a bank account so deep you couldn't even count it, but so poor for all of eternity. Wow. He holds that before us and says, But he says it in love, calling us to wisdom. Which we'll look at a little bit later. But Bottom line, money cannot save you from death. Money cannot buy you eternal life. Money cannot pay the penalty due your sin. Money cannot bribe you into God's favor. Money cannot redeem your soul from hell. Therefore, like Jesus would say elsewhere, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? God doesn't take American Express. Or Visa or MasterCard or anything else you might try to throw at him. He's not impressed. We're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, right? Now, for men and women created in the image of God, designed to find their lasting security, pleasure, and identity in Him, what we come to see is that all along the way, they're kind of tremors. As people try to build their life on the sand, as they try to build their security on this wealth and find their pleasure in it and their identity in it, We've been created in the image, created for God, relationship with Him. All along the way, there's going to be these sort of tremors, kind of hinting at the reality that this is foolish. This is not going to be all that we're kind of hoping it will be. There's always kind of running alongside our pursuit of money and stuff that there must be more to life. I came across... um, Something uh, from the guy, I don't know if you know Marcus Person. He's the guy who, I've never played the game, but he invented Minecraft or created that game. And he uh, sold it to Microsoft, became filthy rich. Um, and then in a moment of telling vulnerability, he tweeted out, I'm not one to quote tweets, but here we go. He tweeted out the following. I'm hanging out. In this island is actually, this is such an exotic place, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Hanging out in Abiza, 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 there you go, you've traveled the world. (laughs) Hanging out in Abiza, it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want. And I've never 
felt more isolated. Interestingly, Business Insider retweeted this, saying, Billionaire Minecraft founder Marcus Person proves money doesn't buy happiness. Now, one guy responds underneath in the comments with what probably some of you would say, which is this, give me his money, I'll prove otherwise. (laughs) Something's just wrong with that guy. Give me his money, I'll be happy. That's what we think. Philip, I'm, I'm maxing this out. Sorry. Nonetheless, what this does for us, and we could come up with countless examples, celebrities, people that have it all, that what gets in there and fills that? <laughs> what this shows us is that money doesn't get there. That there's something to a human being that money cannot get to. It really illustrates for us what Jesus says in verse 15. Again, I read it. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Hence, you can have the world and still feel alone. And still feel empty. And still feel like something is lacking. And the vertigo, the vertigo that ensues as a result of this sort of thing. you got to think about this. The dizziness, the disorientation. When the whole world and your life, uh, the whole world's been telling you that money will get you satisfaction, security, identity. And you've ushered, oriented, marshaled your, your whole life to get that. And then you are actually one of the few who get it. You're at the top and you go, oh my God. This isn't it. The vertigo that you experience in those moments, the disorientation is you go, well, where do I turn now? I have everything. I tell you, in those moments, that person is either on the brink of suicide or salvation. True salvation as it's found in Jesus Christ. They are either ready to kill themselves because there's no hope, or they're ready to come to Christ as their only hope. I was reminded at this point in my preparation of C.S. Lewis's wise words here. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God relationship with him in other words when you get it all and you find it lacking it just might lead you to consider the answer lies outside the stuff of this world in god security pleasure identity in him now Again, if you're worried, first one is where I was going to spend most of my time. Let me cover the second option here quickly. We can approach money as savior. We can approach it also on the other side of the extreme as enemy. Um, I should back up and at least say this to make sense of why, especially in the church, we often do this. Um, so within the church, we have, uh, there have been those, sadly, who have bought into the first option there. Money is savior. But to get it into the church, you can't just say that. That wouldn't be right. 
can't just tell people that money is really where your heart is and your treasure is and it's all about the stuff. So you have to kind of baptize that greed and make it holy, make it look holy at least. Of course, I'm referring to things like the prosperity gospel. Okay, if you've heard of it, I'll, I'll sum it up for you in a sentence. Here's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. Your spiritual maturity can be measured by your material prosperity. You know you have God's pleasure when you have a lot of the world's stuff. And if you don't have the world's stuff, something must be wrong with you, your faith, your trust, your relationship with God, because God takes care of His kids. Abundantly. And they define that as material prosperity, health, wealth, Now, I don't have time to deal with that, but many of us may see the foolishness, the blatant lack of biblical warrant for something like the prosperity gospel. We follow a crucified Savior, for goodness sake. And Paul himself would find you know, similar fate, all his disciples, similar fate. It's not like Jesus suffered, we don't have to. It's Jesus suffered so we can get through it. Because he's there to give us strength in the midst of the fire. Plenty of us see that, and here's the problem. Push back against it. But whenever you push back against one extreme, what you realize is you're in danger of actually falling onto the other side. And so what happens is, is if the, uh, those that are kind of opposed to the prosperity gospel can actually move into what I would call the poverty gospel. If the prosperity gospel kind of measures your spiritual maturity by your material prosperity, the poverty gospel measures it by precisely the opposite. The more poor you are, the more destitute, the more you give all your stuff away and you have nothing, the more you suffer, the holier you must be. And so then there's this overreaction in the church that sees money and stuff, here's where we're going, as enemy as somehow inherently evil. And, and, and the real holy people have forsaken that worldly stuff and are pursuing the spiritual over here. I, I can't elaborate. I'll just leave it at that. To counter this approach, though, all we need to do once more is go back to our text in Luke. For while... Um, Admittedly, it is not quite so clear as with the first. Nonetheless, here we see that money is not really the problem at all. Um, In fact, as Paul would say, uh, what we see is that it is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. That's a significant nuance. Money is not the issue. Money is not the but there's something In me, there's a love for it. In our text, there in verse 15, Jesus calls this covetousness. Did you see that? It's the first time I just kind of waited to read it until right now. But he says, take care and be on your guard against what? Money, because it will get you. No. Against all covetousness. 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The word translated covetousness here, pleonexia in the Greek, is defined as the state of desiring to have more than one's due. Greediness, insatiableness, avarice. The issue is desire. Money is not the active evil agent here and we are victims who need to flee from it. Money is kind of the context that exposes the evil in me. As I go, I gotta get it. You with me on that? The evil is not outside of me. The evil is inside of me and money occasions that. Comes out when I see it. My affections move towards it. And Jesus is saying, take care, be on your guard against that. This desire for it. That's the evil. That's all I'll say there. Let me move towards the third and final option and start to draw things to a close. Money is not savior, but it's also not enemy. What we come to see from the scriptures is that it is actually what I would call, therefore, an opportunity. A kingdom opportunity, you might say, whereby we can bring glory to God in the way that we are grateful to him for it and generous to others with it. I'm going to back up again here and I'm going to explain to you what I mean and how I want to get into this is by simply asking the question, um, what is our God like? When it comes to money, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to, if you could say, God's possessions, what is our God like? How does he handle his stuff? Because that's going to change everything for us. I wanted to think about that with you. When our God looks at the abundance of his possessions, does he store it up in barns and hoard it? Is he selfish? Is he stingy? Or is it not that our God is in fact the fountainhead of all life? The source of every blessing. The giver of every good gift. James 1.17, you got to love this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It's Christmas time. Everybody's thinking about gifts. God is the giver of every perfect gift. That's how he handles his stuff. But think about it even further with me. I, I, I mentioned last week in Genesis 1 when we were uh, looking at creation. Um, I, I, I want to kind of look at that one more time. Uh, God creates, right? Heavens, earth, sky, sea. And he fills, right? He fills with sun and moon, animals, plants. But what I want you to catch is that The whole creation story, the days of creation, it's all kind of ascending to day six. Where God does what? Creates man and woman. 
And then he essentially looks at all he had created previously and he says, it's yours. What I want you to catch is days one through five, largely, what's happening there, the image in my mind. It's like God is preparing a present for you and I. It's like God is kind of, you know, wrapping the bow, buying the stuff, getting it all ready, placing it on the tree. I can't wait for my, my kids to see this. They're going to love it. Day six, here we come. And here's what he says. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish, the seed, the birds, and every other living thing that moves on the earth. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. In other words, look around you, it's all yours. And here is the saddest moment of all. Like greedy little kids on Christmas morning that had our hearts set on one thing, but mom and daddy got us, you know, God forbid they get you like PJs or fresh underwear or something, might buy you socks. But you had your heart set on one thing, you open up that box and find it's another. You say, I wanted something better. No, thank you. You have the receipt. Take it back. That's what we said to God. I want something better. So what does God do? How does he respond? He says, okay, finally. Now I'm just going to take my stuff, put it up in my barns, keep it from you. I never wanted to give it to you anyways. You ungrateful little brats. No problem. It's mine. I didn't say that. In grace, in love, and overflowing generosity, in response to our plea for something better. He gives us something better. <laughs> Can you believe this? He gives us His Son, His one and only beloved Son, the treasure of heaven. And here's the thought that occurred to me as I was talking with the guys yesterday at the elders meeting. He doesn't store his son up in a barn for himself. Instead, he sends his son to be born in a barn for the world. But that's what Christmas is. It is on display the generosity, the radical, the insane, the what we would call foolish, lavish generosity, grace of our Father who takes bratty kids and gives them the best gift He could give them to get them back. We're so much more than bratty kids. We are rebels to the core, deserving of wrath. But he says, no, I'll send my son to take that wrath. To live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died, so that if we would repent and receive him, what does he do? You kind of get into the back, you know, corners of heaven? No! He says, your sins are forgiven. You are counted righteous in him and you become an heir of the world to come. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I believe in the prosperity gospel. 
I just think they get the timing wrong. They bring it back to the here and now. Jesus said, you have no idea what prosperity is waiting for you. But it's going to come through some hard times. Heir of the world. So, let me tell you something. When you know this God, when you know this generosity, when you know his care, his provision, his commitment, which is really where the following verses in Luke 12 are going to go. You know this God, he's going to care for you, he's going to provide for you, he's going to commit himself to you. He didn't withhold his son from you. When you know that, it changes everything about how you're going to handle money. No longer is money a savior. No longer is it an enemy. Sure, it's important, but it's now just money. And what it becomes for us at this moment, I think, is opportunity. A kingdom opportunity whereby we can, again, bring glory to God in the way that we are both grateful to him for it and generous to others with it. When we have things, when God provides, we, we, it becomes a moment of worship, not of the stuff, but of the God who gives. And it also becomes potential for mission as we go, man, I want others to see the God who gives as I give to them. You see, this is precisely where the man in our parable faltered. He came to a a decision point, and he failed. See this with me, verses 16, 17. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, here it is, here's the critical moment in yours and my life. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I have more than I need. I have more than the basic essentials. I have more than what I... What should I do? That's the point. And instead of moving upwards towards God and gratitude, thank you for this, and then moving outwards to others and generosity, then take it. I don't need it. I want you to know. I mean, God has just blessed me. Here it is. Instead of all that, he moves inward. He caves inward on himself with great Oh, I could use a little more. Build bigger barns, more security, pleasure, identity. Think of what all my neighbors will think when they see how big my full barns are. I'm something. He had opportunity to grow deeper in love with God, pour his stuff out in love for neighbor, instead of love for self. And Jesus looked at all that and said, You may be rich in the eyes of the world, but you are poor before the only eyes that matter. I don't want us to be fools. I don't want to be a fool. Make no mistake. The world would call this man wise. (laughs) But God calls him a fool. The world will call us fools. When we give our stuff away, when we hold it loosely, when it doesn't mean the world to us, God will call us wise. I was reminded of those now famous words written by Jim Elliot, and this is where I'll leave us. 
He's the man who was murdered on the mission field in Ecuador. And in his journals, as he's contemplating his mission and all these things, he, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you serve us so abundantly. Thank you that we have a generous God who comes after sinners. Thank you that you gave us something better, even though we demanded it in greed, self-centered rebellion. Thank you for the gift of our Savior. And thank you for the way that frees us from the tyranny of money. We have God and your commitment. Why do we need stuff? You own it all. You will provide. God, I pray we'd be radically free and radically generous people. I pray that when we get stuff, it would lead us towards gratitude and worship you. And it would, it would, it would become fodder for the mission field. As we use it to show that money is not our treasure. Not our God. But you are. It's in your name I ask these things. Amen.